Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Today we interview Greg McGarrion, a professor of constitutional law at Washington University in St. Louis, who visited campus earlier this week for Constitution Day. Greg, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Now, you are a uh, scholar in constitutional law. You know, how did you get involved in this subject matter? Like, is was this something that moved you even when you were a little kid, or is it something that you gravitated towards a little bit later in life? Well, the beginning goes back to when I was a little kid. My dad was a journalist. He was a newspaper guy. And so I was... I sort of grew up in, a, in and around a newsroom and loved that environment. And when... I don't know when it happened, but, you know, and I sort of learned a little bit about, okay, what is the First Amendment? And it connects to journalism. That was a seed in my head. And when I eventually decided, you know, I didn't have any better idea after college than to go to law school, that was sort of the natural subject to to pursue and be interested in. You know, so obviously Justice uh, John Paul Stevens recently passed away. Um, You clerked for Justice Stevens. I'm curious, do you have any interesting stories? And what does a Supreme Court clerk do on a day-to-day basis? Oh, man, I could talk about that for a long time. Short answer, uh, uh, Supreme Court justice, like all judges at different levels, has some number of clerks, usually recent immediate law school grads. Uh, So I first clerked for a federal district judge right after I graduated from law school, and then the following year clerked for Justice Stevens. And the clerk's job is just to help the judge or justice do their job. Um, Your smart labor that is capable of some sleepless nights, um, you're not somebody at that point who has a great deal of legal knowledge, let alone wisdom, but you know how to think your way around a legal problem, and that makes you somewhat useful in the work that judges have to do. So clerks typically help the, like on the Supreme Court, a huge part of the what the court does is sifting through eight to 10,000 petitions that they get for people who want their cases heard to figure out which hundred or so of those cases are actually going to get heard. There are norms and principles in place that sort of govern how that process is supposed to go, but the clerks do a lot of the grunt labor of just working through those petitions and finding the ones that kind of fit the template of what the court is is actually wanting to, to spend its time on. Um, you help to prepare the justice for oral argument. They're looking at the issues for upcoming cases that the that, that, that are going to be argued. You're at the same time as a clerk looking at those issues. And with Justice Stevens, a lot of justices and judges have their clerks write formal memos, bench memos with that information. Justice Stevens was great. He, he, we would just sit around, the clerks and the justice would have a, a casual conversation, casual but very substantive, where he'd say, okay, tell me about this. And, you know, I've looked at, and by this time, you know, I clerked for him. It turned out to be only about halfway through his career. He was already 20 years into his term on the court, and he's a brilliant. he was a brilliant guy. He knew everything. So there wasn't a whole lot of knowledge that we were going to transmit, but he wanted to know sort of our perspective, what we saw, what seemed to be the big problems from our point of view. Um, and then after argument, when he would be writing opinions, we would help in the drafting of opinions. Uh, to be very clear, the opinions reflected his ideas and his judgments, but he would say, okay, look, here's what I want this part of the opinion to say. Do a draft for me because I'm doing 18 other things. And then he would work over the stuff that we wrote. No, it's funny. I'm in an antitrust class right now. So I'm just thinking the number of Stevens' opinions we've read. I wonder if any, if you were oh, maybe yeah. the, the ghost author of any of them. Um, 
<laughs> he was he, antitrust was his. That was how he came up. He was an antitrust lawyer. So, and I, I suspect he, I, I always said Justice Stevens was the 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 legal equivalent of a gym rat in basketball. You know, the guy who's just constantly shooting free throws and stuff. He was just an omnivore. And so, antitrust law he knew probably better than anything because that was his crucible. But but by the time I came along. Antitrust wasn't much of a thing, but 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 if, if if an antitrust case had come up, I think he would have just said, "Okay, guys, take five. You know, I've got this." <laughs> so I guess the First Amendment has always kind of been an integral component of your life. You, you had commented, um, you, "You're here for a speech. You're a professor at the uh, Washington University in St. Louis." Um, but you commented how we have you know the First Amendment kind of engraved on the New Hearth Building, um, and that was what you kind of talked about today. Um, what about you know free speech is is unique to I guess America's political lexicon? I mean, why is it the First Amendment, um, and why do we talk about it so much? That's a really interesting question. I think let me take a step back. Free speech, constitutional protection for free speech, is something that you find in every democratic society, and at least the letter of it, if not the reality of it, even in non-democratic societies. So it's certainly not a principle that is uniquely American, but I think we are. I think your premise is right that we're especially kind of focused on it and proud of it. And I, my amateur sort of historian sociologist in me says some of that has to do with the fact that our country is constructed from lots of spare parts from other places. And a lot has to be said out loud. If you've got a long cultural tradition of people who can, at least a critical mass of people who can trace their origins back a thousand years, I went to Japan a couple of years ago, spent some time there. That's a society that sort of sees itself, understandably, as having these sort of deep roots. A lot of things can go unsaid and a lot of social and cultural norms can just kind of sustain themselves. We need to make that happen. We need to talk to each other. And because of that imperative, I think we maybe have a particular emphasis on constitutional protection for speech and a particular pride in that. And, you know, one concept that you brought up in your speech was that it's, it's almost you can almost consider it the centennial of free speech um, in American jurisprudence. Can you explain that a little bit? What did you mean by that? So the, the, the First Amendment is part of the Bill of Rights, which comes into the Constitution in 1791. But for a variety of legal and historical reasons, nobody raises First Amendment claims for a very long time, partially because until after the Civil War, the Bill of Rights only applied against the federal government, and partially because government wasn't as big then as it is now, and partially because media wasn't as big then as it is now. So uh, there were there was no, I mean, there were, you know, scattered cases in lower courts, but the Supreme Court never heard a First Amendment case until 1919. And it's not surprising or accidental that that those first uh, uh, First Amendment cases came out of protests against World War One. I. I mean, that's a big transition in American history. That's where the United States really steps onto the world stage as an important power. Uh, the Industrial Revolution is happening, so regulation is becoming more uh, uh, aggressive. The First Amendment by that time did apply against the state. So there are all these different pieces coming together to sort of launch First Amendment law as such, and that happens exactly 100 years ago, 1919. 
Well, and, and you you talked about in your you know um, lecture that kind of the next advancement occurred during World War II with Jehovah Witnesses. Can can you explain how that interacted with free speech and what, what that what those cases were about? So I don't actually I'm I, I'm not a historian, so I, I I don't know the whole story. But but I, I sort of know it looking at the cases and and reasoning back from that. But yeah, there's this remarkable phenomenon that there's a whole bunch of really important First Amendment cases in the 1940s. That's the era when the court is really starting to build speech protective First Amendment doctrine. They've been talking about it for a while. And then the 1940s doctrine really starts to solidify. And virtually all of these cases are brought by Jehovah's Witnesses. And the funny thing is, like, all I know about Jehovah's Witnesses now is what most people know. My encounters with Jehovah's Witnesses are the nicest, politest, usually uh, middle-aged to elderly ladies who knock on your door and ask, you know, in the sweetest tone of voice if you'd like to discuss their religion. And, you know, you politely say no. And they're like, oh, well, thank you. Anyway, have a nice day. You know, loveliest people you ever want to meet. In the 1940s, for whatever reason, at least, you know, by looking at it through the lens of these cases, yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses who were getting up in people's faces. There was this one important case where a guy literally brings a record player to a crowded public sidewalk and plays this record about how Jehovah's Witnesses theology is right and everybody else's religion is false and the crowd gets ready to attack him. And, you know, I guess that was part of what was going on with Jehovah's Witnesses then. But there were they were a prominent small but prominent and very vocal religious minority group that apparently had lawyers on call who were eager to raise these issues. And so there's, you know, six or seven cases I could name off the top of my head that are brought by Jehovah's Witnesses that end up making really important First Amendment law. And what were the impact of these cases? They established particular principles. So, for example, the case I was talking about a minute ago with the guy with the record player, that ends up establishing the principle that there's an exception to First Amendment protection for something called fighting words, that if you are speaking in a way that creates a likelihood that the audience is going to physically attack you, the government, usually in the person of the police on the street, can take action to sort of remove you. And that is a really important point of First Amendment doctrine. It's not important so much because it comes up a lot, but it's it's kind of a a problem that they had to think through to figure out, okay, how far does the First Amendment go? What exactly does it protect? So the biggest consequence of these cases was, you know, I, I, the consequences for the Jehovah's Witnesses who were litigating the cases were probably pretty significant. In terms of the broader law, it really was building blocks. It was like, okay, you know, the very first thing that happened starting in 1919 is you got political radicals who are challenging the government's authority. And that's like maybe the most primal First Amendment problem that that there could ever be. And then we get into the stuff with the Jehovah's Witness cases where it's more like they're challenging and pushing against social order and tranquility. And that's kind of the next order problem. Like, OK, what happens when speech you know, makes life messy. How do we deal with that? And so those cases really started to answer those questions and build a foundation for doctrines to deal with those questions. Now, what would be, you know, the doctrine that we live with today? I mean, you've kind of written a book on this, um, and let me get the book title name. It's Managed Speech, the Roberts Court First Amendment. Is that the next then advancement in, you know, free speech jurisprudence? Is it the Roberts Court? Is it the Rehnquist? When did kind of the wheels start to shift a little bit? So it, the real shift, the biggest shift in, in my view came right around 1970, and a couple of things happened uh, at that point. 
first of all, the development of First Amendment law was just sort of reaching a, a, a maturity, like the doctrine had become pretty thick and pretty multifaceted. Um, there was obviously a lot of social turmoil and the personnel on the Supreme Court, when Nixon came into office, there was this rapid sudden shift where Nixon got to replace like four more liberal justices with somewhat too significantly more conservative justices. And so all of those circumstances kind of come into play at once. And the Supreme Court takes a turn in First Amendment law away from uh, what had been for the first 50 years since 1919, the, the emphasis on protecting political dissenters and socially marginal speakers, you know, these Jehovah's Witnesses and communists and socialists and radicals and the civil rights movement in the 60s. These were the paladins of First Amendment law up to that point. And then starting around 1970, you start to get more and more First Amendment cases about the rights of institutional media. And then it really picks up speed and you get campaign finance doctrine, First Amendment protecting wealthy interests who want to spend money in elections. Uh, you get uh, First Amendment protection for commercial speech. And so in the 70s, this change sort of picks up speed. And what you get is a radical shift in emphasis away from protecting marginal speakers and political dissidents toward protecting big, powerful, wealthy institutional speakers of various kinds. Well, and this kind of brings up the next point that I wanted to talk about. And part of how you opened up um, your talk today was talking about kind of the changing attitudes that young people have towards the First Amendment. And I thought a really interesting point that you made is that it, it might not be the supporters of the First Amendment who have changed, but the defenders um, and, and kind of the way that they have used it, like you said, to more um, institutional concerns. You know, why? I, 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 let me take a step back here, I guess. Have attitudes amongst young people changed towards the First Amendment? And if they have, why? The first – those are both hard questions and really important questions. As to the first question, I think the answer is a qualified yes. I think you hear a lot of rhetoric in public discussion about how young people today have no respect for free speech whatsoever. Well, I've actually seen survey data You know, asking college students, what do you think about this and this and this free speech principle? And for the most part – uh, there's a lot of support among young people, at least according to that evidence, for free speech principles. But there is definitely more uh, resistance to protection for intolerant speech, hate speech, colloquially. Um, hate speech isn't really a, a term of art in law, but it's it's a, a term, obviously, that we talk about a lot in public debate. Um, and, and so my kind of broad theory about that. It goes to, as you said, the idea that what's changed fundamentally isn't that, you know, suddenly young people, I mean, you hear all this stuff, young people are coddled and they're illiberal and blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's right. I think since the beginning of time, old people have been talking about how young people don't respect the verities and get off my lawn and all that stuff. I think what's really changed is that young people look at First Amendment rhetoric and First Amendment rhetoric says, hey, it's good for everybody to have free speech. And young people look at First Amendment law now and sort of say, wait a minute, there's supposed to be something in it for me. The promise of First Amendment rhetoric is, you know what, you, some of you over there, you're just going to have to suffer forever, but don't worry about it. You should still love free speech. The rhetoric is, it's good for all of us. And you look at, so I'll put it in the context of the current Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, which has really picked up these trends I was talking about from the 70s. The Roberts Court, uh, the, the Supreme Court, uh, the, pardon me, the, the First Amendment decisions of the Roberts Court have almost no 
protection for political dissidents, ragtag, underfunded speakers, and let alone, I mean, when they do protect sort of political dissenters, it's right-wing political dissenters. It's it's anti-abortion protesters. Most of the decisions, the big important ones, with, with some exceptions, are protecting, again, bigger institutional, wealthier speakers. The biggest obsession of the Roberts Court has been campaign finance. So if you're a young person and somebody's telling you, hey, the First Amendment is for everyone— and you're looking at what First Amendment law is actually doing, it's quite reasonable to say, wait a minute, I don't see what's in this for me. And if you are a young African-American or Latino or Native American person, I can't speak to that experience directly, but I would imagine that that effect is amplified, that you say, wait a minute, First Amendment doctrine is providing strong protection for people who denigrate my very identity and existence, but you know, if I'm a young Native American, I'm putting up with that. And then maybe I go protest uh, the pipeline and I'm getting slapped down by law enforcement and the First Amendment isn't helping me. And I look at what the Supreme Court's doing and they're not saying anything about how the First Amendment should be helping me. Why exactly am I supposed to uh, pledge my uh, allegiance to this abstract principle of free speech that's only hurting me and not helping me. And, and that's, that's a generalization and an exaggeration to some extent, but I mean that deliberately. I, don't th I think the story is always complicated, but I think that, that, that is a reality. And I think it's a reality that a lot of young people are responding to. You know, I think that brings up another arena um, that's sort of at the intersection of young people and free speech, which is free speech on college campuses. And obviously, South Dakota has had quite a bit of experience with this um, lately with different pieces of legislation in our state legislature that have dealt with free speech. You had some interesting, I thought, thoughts um, on HB 1087, the kind of free speech bill here in South Dakota. And you kind of qualified your analysis. You said that from, you know, in one viewpoint, it sort of supports these very traditional notions of American free speech jurisprudence, the public forum doctrine, um, you know, allocating funds fairly in a non-discriminatory manner towards different, um, you know, uh, student organizations. But you also said that in another way, the legislative leadership when developing and crafting this bill were pretty opaque in you know, and you said it was kind of with remarkable candor that they rejected what you view as pretty traditional principles of American free speech jurisprudence. What do you mean by that? And where are the fault lines with this specific piece of legislation? If you look at the statute uh, on its own terms, the text of the statute, it has a lot of ideas and language that just about anybody who cares about free speech would would sign on to. Uh, protecting public forums for people to express themselves on government property, as you said, uh, non-discriminatory allocation of funds, intellectual diversity, which is the focus. I mean, you know, who's going to be against intellectual diversity? But then you take a step back and the first question to ask, and obviously I'm coming at this as an outsider, you folks have, have been living this debate, but as an outsider, the first question I ask is, why are they enacting this law that basically says a bunch of stuff that courts have already said the First Amendment provides? So when legislatures take their precious time to do things that appear unnecessary or redundant of existing legal protections, I begin to wonder if, if something else is going on. And in this case, you don't have to wonder because the legislature wrote this very candid letter, very transparent letter that says, here's what we mean. Here's what, this, what the, the words of the statute are actually supposed to be doing. And what the letter says in a dozen different ways over and over again is what the statute is supposed to be doing is 
uh, forcing the university to hire more conservative faculty and administrators, uh, promoting conservative ideas at the expense of non-conservative ideas, purging institutions within the university that, in the legislature's view, promote uh, non-conservative ideas like diversity offices. And so we get the full picture. And the full picture, in in a complete 180-degree irony, turns out to be a, a statute that isn't promoting free speech in any way that's recognizable to First Amendment doctrine and law. We get a statute that's actually violating, in in my view. And I'm, I'm I might be wrong about anything, but I'm pretty confident about this. HB 1087, if it is implemented aggressively along the lines that the legislature set forth in that explanatory letter, it's going to violate the First Amendment eight ways to Sunday. The government can't say hire more conservatives. The government can't say don't hire liberals. The government can't say purge speakers and institutions from campus because they promote ideas that we disagree with. I mean, there are certain levels at, at which the government is supposed to directly control speech. You know, if the government's own PR office is like saying the government sucks, okay, you can fire the PR officer. That's simple. But that's not what universities are. Universities are supposed to have and, – and again, ironically, the, the statute on its face recognizes this. Universities are supposed to be – intellectually vibrant, largely independent and autonomous institutions that do the very particular and hard work of teaching and inculcating ideas and promoting debate and discussion about ideas. And this law claims on its face to be promoting those values, but it's clear from the legislature's explanation that the law is actually attacking those values. So in your opinion, I mean, does the legislature have, you know, any evidence or, or from your experience as a, as a faculty member, at, you know, at a, at a you know, law school here in the United States? I mean, is free speech under attack on cal college campuses? Where does that belief come from? It is a complicated question. And obviously, I think by this time, it's clear that, that I have, you know, my own strong views on a lot of this stuff. So all I can do is share them. I think that... The biggest threat to free speech on campus right now is the threat from state legislatures and at private universities, which aren't subject to the First Amendment, from uh, sort of important constituencies at those universities that want to shut down uh, ideas that they don't agree with. If you're trying to figure out where threats to free speech are coming from, a good starting point in that inquiry is always to remember that the most important threats to free speech are going to come from the institutions, starting with the government, but not limited to the government, that have the most power. And so the narrative that you hear from a lot of conservative activists about free speech on campus is conservative students are under attack. They can't speak their minds. And I don't want to overstate my response to that. I am sure there are instances where that is true. I have seen anecdotes that I take entirely at face value that, to be true that say, here's an instance where a liberal professor in a classroom was intolerant. And, and by all means, those kinds of uh, uh, that sort of, of intolerance of student points of view uh, should be dealt with and, and, and should be, you know, that, that shouldn't happen. An institution should prevent that stuff from happening. But a lot of what I hear is conservative students saying, well, I'm afraid to speak my mind because I'm afraid that if I say build that wall or if I say, um, you know, uh, keep those Confederate monuments, that, that I'm going to get all kinds of savage pushback. Well, you know what? That savage pushback is what we call free speech. If you say something 
people may disagree with you, and you may not like the experience of people disagreeing with you. And in this world, in this country, and of all places on college campuses, your right to free speech, which by all means you should exercise, does not include a right not to be disagreed with or a right for your free speech to be a fun and non-taxing experience. That's how it works. And yeah, there are a lot of people who think build that wall is an appalling idea. And there are a lot of people who think that Confederate monuments should come down and they're going to pile on you. And maybe there's more of them than there are of you. You know, young people tend to be more liberal than older people. So in most classrooms in this country, uh, conservative students are definitely going to face pushback. That's not a violation of your free speech rights. That's living in the world. And, and that's to the extent that that sort of complaint is a big part of the free speech under attack on campuses narrative that you hear from conservatives. Um, I think that narrative is not only understated, but, but dangerously deceptive and or misfocused. You know, so where do we go from here? And I mean this both, you know, philosophically, but then also if I can ask you to project a little bit about where you see maybe the, the current Supreme Court then moving with free speech decisions. I mean, where are we headed with free speech and how can we encourage, yeah, I think, an idea that at the base of, of free speech opponents, where they wherever they fall on the political pr perspective, you know, this, this marketplace of ideas, most people seem to support that notion, right? How can we encourage that? To me, the most important values in sort of moving forward with free speech are inclusion and diversity of a certain type. What we want, I think, in, in public discourse, which is the term that a lot of us First Amendment types use for the, the kind of uh, medium that we're ultimately talking about, that, that, that free speech law and, and theory uh, impact. What we want in public discourse is an environment where no one is excluded from expressing their ideas and from considering ideas that other people express. No one is excluded by social, especially governmental power structures. The governmental part is the First Amendment. The social part is more a matter of free speech principle. And what's good about that is what, 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 free speech principle fundamentally promotes is a world in which everyone's engaged, most importantly probably in, in, in political decision-making in a democratic society, but also just in social life, that everybody should feel like, okay, I can get out there in the world and express myself and share my ideas and see what people think, and I can hear what other people have to say and see what I think of that, and that process should make me and us collectively as a society better informed and smarter and should promote mutual understanding. So... I want a regime of First Amendment law that promotes those values, and I want an account of First Amendment principle out there in the world that promotes those values. And that's an abstraction, but it has a lot of different uh, important consequences. So uh, I was hearing a little bit earlier about an incident on this campus that reflects incidents on a lot of other campuses where there were white supremacist flyers or posters being hung up, and the university responded to that in a perhaps somewhat uh, neutral way, not trying to come out very strongly on one side or the other. And uh, a lot of students of color said, hey, that's making me feel unsafe and making me feel uh, unwelcome. So that's a, a, a wrenching incident, but a great example of what First Amendment law and free speech theory need to do. The university in that situation 
should be able to express its values institutionally. You're not shutting anybody up or shutting anybody down as an institution by saying, hey, this institution, uh, as a matter of policy, finds those ideas appalling. We hew to the values that everybody has uh, an equal right and stake to participate in the life of this university. You know, if you're a white supremacist and you're afraid that that stand is going to mean you're going to get a lower grade in your biology class, go away. I mean, that's that's not what a stand like that is doing. It's not saying you're not going to get a fair shake with your radical, you know, your reactionary views. It's 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 saying the university has a position on this that guides university policy. And then the next step is actually create an environment to do the marketplace of ideas. Marketplace of ideas doesn't work if it's just a uh, an aphorism sitting out there in the air. If there's white supremacists sort of talking, uh, uh, expressing their ideas and, and, and denigrating other groups of people, an institution, a responsible institution should be creating a forum, like saying, hey, let's pick this apart. Let's talk about what these people are saying. Let's talk about the history of it. Let's talk about the, you know, just look at it from every angle and, and this is what Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes first said when he, when he, in, in the context of American law, expressed this marketplace of ideas. It's a test of truth. We want a test of truth. So, okay, you got white supremacists talking. Let's test that truth. And guess what? Spoiler alert: white supremacists are full of crap. And and most people of sane and right mind have known that for a very, very long time. So, it, it's not enough to just say, oh, you know we have a neutral environment in which anybody can say anything hateful and that's fine and nobody's going to mess with it. That's the first step is, okay, these people have a First Amendment right to say what they're going to say. But then the next series of steps is what happens after that and what do responsible institutions, public and private, do to foster a conversation that will ultimately result in a a state of affairs where everybody is heard, where everybody has an opportunity to think uh, uh, around these difficult topics and achieve hopefully the best understanding of truth that is available to them. Greg, um, thank you so much for visiting the University of South Dakota campus here. Obviously, you're kind of topically, or you're here at a topical moment um, with, with everything that's going on here. So it was great to have you. It was great to have you visit and um, educate some of our students. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's it's been a lot of fun to be here. Uh, the students, the folks who who I've talked to, are. are provocative and 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 really thinking hard about these issues and and I just love being in an environment where that's for whatever reason where where that hard thinking is going on. Thanks Greg. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we speak with USD alumna and yoga expert Rebecca Johnson from Soul Story Yoga in Yankton, South Dakota for National Yoga Awareness Month. 